Let's talk about imposter syndrome. While imposter syndrome is a universal experience, there are times when this experience is activated more than others. A common trigger for imposter syndrome is when we take on new and expanded roles. There's excitement at first, and then the potential for doubting yourself will creep in. Imposter syndrome and the reactions women often have to it, over-preparing or withdrawing, can hobble women just as they are given the opportunity to make a greater impact. In August, I had an opportunity to speak on a panel for Aspen Tech's Women's Leadership Forum. That is where I met Kim Menninger. We instantly clicked, and the added bonus is Kim specializes in imposter syndrome and even did a TED Talk on the subject. Kim is an ICF-certified leadership coach and a consultant on a mission to make it easier to be human at work. She recognizes that the greatest challenges we face in the workplace are not related to our competence, but to our confidence levels. And she strives to reveal the messy human side of the workplace and provide actionable strategies to help us more confidently navigate our work environments. Kim previously held leadership positions managing strategic relationships at EMC and Monster, and she holds a BA in psychology and an MBA from Boston College. Kim hosts the Imposter Syndrome Files podcast and leads a weekly Leading Humans discussion forum, which is free and open to all. In this episode, Kim and I discuss imposter syndrome as a fear response, and Kim likens imposter syndrome to our brain's fight-or-flight response, and she's going to offer practical steps to manage it. We talked about how everyone experiences imposter syndrome, but men and women tend to respond in different ways, the importance of recognizing individual triggers and patterns that activate imposter syndrome and how to approach your work in a way that prevents over-preparation or withdrawal. And lastly, giving yourself space and grace when taking on a new role. If you are new to the Women Taking the Lead podcast, hello and welcome. I'm Jody Flynn, the CEO and founder of Women Taking the Lead, a leadership development company that works with individuals, allies, and organizations to create gender parity by attracting, developing, and successfully promoting more women into senior levels of leadership. My goal is for the podcast to be a valuable resource for you and others in your organization to grow in your leadership. If we are not already connected on LinkedIn, please send me an invitation to connect. You can find me directly at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Jody Flynn, or you can search on the platform for Jody Flynn. I am very active on LinkedIn, so I should be at or near the top of the search results. Be sure to add a note to the invitation, letting me know you're a listener of the podcast. I would love to connect with you and get to know you better. Now. Let's bring Kim on. Welcome to the Women Taking the Lead podcast, Kim. Thank you so much, Jody. I can't wait for this conversation. I'm so glad we finally had an opportunity to record this. We met some time ago. You know, I talked about that in the intro, and it was like click magic. And I was like, 
oh my goodness, this would be great to have Kim on the podcast. So I've introduced you to everyone. They've gotten kind of the highlights of your career and work that you're doing. But before we dive more into your work, tell us a little bit more about what you have going on outside of the work you do. Well, most recently, I just actually came back from a trip to New Orleans over the weekend. So this was my first time visiting the city. It was so much fun. My family and I went and we are on a, well, I should say I am and I'm dragging the rest of my family along with me on a personal (laughs) mission to see all 50 states. So I'm trying to, you know, phase my or pace myself through all of the different states. And that was my way of seeing Louisiana. Oh, I love that. And every state has something that you just have to see. I remember a friend telling me years ago, like, yeah, I want to, I want to travel internationally, but there are so many things to see right in our own country that I really want to like check those boxes too. Yes, exactly. I feel the same way. There's just not enough time to see everything you want. (laughs) No, there never is. You you just have to do your best, take it in, be present and enjoy things while you're there. I love that. (laughs) So let's talk about, I'm dying to talk about the work that you focus on, particularly imposter syndrome. Mm. So tell us a little bit about how you got on that particular area and what that looks like for you in your business. Yeah, thank you for the question. I have had a lifelong relationship with imposter syndrome, at least in my adult life. I studied psychology as an undergrad, so I was introduced to the concept many, many years ago. So in some ways, that was a benefit because I knew it when it came to me when I had that experience in high tech. And so I stumbled into the high tech industry couple years out of college when I decided not to go into a PhD program for psychology. And I was just hit in the face with this feeling of, I don't know enough. I am surrounded by all of these really smart technical people. They're speaking a language I don't understand. I would sit in meetings and feel like I was one question away from the whole house of cards collapsing. Mm. So the anxiety was really, really intense. And it lasted for quite a long time before I started to get more comfortable, find strategies for how to manage it. And so when I started my own business about 12 years ago now, I was very determined to be the resource to women that I didn't have during my time in the tech, uh, my, the tech phase of my career. And so much of what we face as challenges in the workplace It's kind of rooted in that self-doubt and that mindset piece of I'm not good enough. There's been a huge mistake. Someone's going to find out that I don't belong in this role. And so that's where so much of my attention has been over the the past number of years. Mm -hmm. And I would say in the work that I do as well, like, sure, there is some skill development that's done, but the biggest piece of it is mindset. Because if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't have the right mindset, you can have all the skills and you will still struggle. And Kim, you had shared, I don't know if it was during the panel that we were on or in one of the conversations we had after that about how you had an epiphany that helped to resolve some of that imposter syndrome where I think it was somebody pointed out to you 
how valuable it was what you brought to the table. Like we don't need, so to, you know, yes. all, you, we don't need you to have the same skills as everyone else. Tell us a, a little bit about that. Cause yeah. I think that is like, that's almost like the balloon that needs to get burst that, that conception that like, I need to be like everybody else. Yes. And that was the heart of my TEDx talk that I did last year, because I was sitting in these meetings, as I mentioned, and I just couldn't stop thinking about how much I didn't know. I wasn't thinking about what I did know. And so I decided I need to solve this problem. I just need to fix this because I can't live like this any longer. And my first thought was, and I think a lot of women can relate to this because we like the definitive textbook for anything we don't know, right? So my thought was, I'll just go back to school. I'll get a master's in engineering and I'll be able to speak their language. Simple as that, right? (laughs) I I want to pause right there, Kim, because I just want to put this out there. How many of us think we need another degree, another certification, not because it would be a really good stepping stone in our career to get where we want to go, but really just so we feel better about our own competencies. (laughs) Continue, Kim. (laughs) You're so right, Jody. It feels like, oh, if I just get one more credential, right, just one more set of letters after my name, then I'll suddenly feel confident and legitimate in the role that I hold. And, you know, I took three courses before I realized that was not the right path for me. And my plan B was to reach out to the head of engineering. He was probably seven levels above me at this point. But I sat down with him and I said, pretty vulnerably, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm in over my head in these meetings. Do you think I should get an engineering degree if I want to advance my career here? And he kind of looked at me funny. He's like, engineering degree? You don't need an engineering degree. You're surrounded by engineers. He said, you need to have a technical conversation. Bring a technical person into the room with you. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know what you don't know and build relationships with people who have those skills. And that was the epiphany for me because when I walked out of that room, I immediately thought to myself, you know what? Not in my resume, not in any interview I've had, not in the single conversation I have had with one of my colleagues have I ever positioned myself as a technical person. It's not like I'm lying to people. I haven't misled them but they still keep inviting me to these meetings, right? They're, they're inviting me to the meeting not to compete with Bob from engineering who has 20 years of experience I'll never have and quite frankly don't want. They're inviting me because of the lens that I bring. I was a relationship manager. My job was to represent the business and the partnership. And as soon as I could make that shift and think about what I did have to offer, not what I didn't have to offer or the ways in which I didn't measure up to the people around me, then I could focus and show up with confidence. Right. Because then you have the realization like, oh, I have a skill that they don't. They need me. Like I'm an important person here. (laughs) I love that. And I love that story because sometimes we need that, that moment of clarity of like, it isn't about the experience I don't have or the credential I don't have or the degree or particular knowledge. It's about what do I bring to this table? How do I add value? And and starting from there. So we're going to pivot a little bit, but I, I have to admit there's this, um, I have a recording that's going through my head right now because I'm re I'm going to admit it. I'm re-listening to the binge mode, Harry Potter podcast. <laughs> and there's, <laughs> there's a part on every um, one of their episodes where there'll be like, it's Jason and Mallory, where one of them will say to the other, Jason, 
tell us what we need to know about, and then they announce the topic for that episode. And it might be the room of requirement or horror cruxes or all of this stuff. I love it. So Kim, tell us what we need to know about imposter syndrome. Mm. So here's how I think about it. And this has been incredibly helpful to me because I've had a lifelong anxiety disorder. I'm somebody who can catastrophize with the best of them, right? I will stay up all hours of the night thinking and worrying. So even though imposter syndrome is not a diagnosable condition, it is not a recognized medical disorder or psychiatric disorder, it comes with a lot of anxiety. That fear that I'm going to be found out, that fear that I'm a fraud is very anxiety provoking. And so I have found it helpful to think of imposter syndrome as just another very natural human fear response. So in the same way that you know, our brains are wired to detect the threat of a physical predator in our midst, right? We are wired to detect things like rejection, failure, and humiliation. Our brains have not evolved to a level where we can make a good distinction between those. Mm-hmm. So when we find ourselves fearing the kinds of things that we fear with imposter syndrome, it activates our fight or flight response. So I have had women tell me repeatedly things like, I don't know what happens to me. It's like I get into this room and I lose my ability to form a coherent thought. I can't articulate what I want to say. And I must have had the same variation of that conversation maybe four times in a week when finally I said, time out. These are all really smart, capable women. They don't second guess themselves when they're in rooms full of people that they trust or, you know, their friends, their their close colleagues. They don't stumble through their words what's happening when they're entering these spaces is not that they're losing IQ points. It's that they don't feel safe. They feel triggered. They've gone into fight or flight. And when you go into fight or flight, you temporarily lose access to the cognitive functioning in your brain. You can't think straight. You can't problem solve. You can't reason. And so it's important for us to know this because if we don't know that that's what's happening, when we experience that, it reinforces our narrative. So if I believe going into this room that I don't belong in this room and that everyone else is smarter than me, and then I struggle with anything that I'm sharing, my thought might be, see, I knew I didn't belong here. No one else is struggling to articulate what they have to say. It's my problem, right? I'm not, I'm just not good enough. But if I know instead, my brain has detected a threat. I don't feel safe here then I can reframe the experience and I can actually take steps to come back to a more neutral place. And there are three very practical steps that I recommend to everybody if you find yourself in this situation. So you want to first and foremost start by knowing what your fight or flight response looks like because oftentimes we're just not consciously aware of it. But as soon as you feel it kick in, and I know mine really well, the minute I feel a drop in my stomach like I'm on a roller coaster, that is the first indication that it's time to intervene. So, So the first thing to do is to take deep breaths. It sounds super cliche, but the reason why this works is because You would not be able to stop and take a deep breath if you were being chased by a tiger in the wilderness. As soon as you take a deep breath, you send a very clear signal to your brain, false alarm, nothing to see here, right? And your brain starts to slowly come back to neutral. 
Second, keep a drink with you at all times. It is a perfect pause button, right? If you are worried all of a sudden, if you're asked a question you weren't prepared for and your brain starts to fog up and you don't feel like you have an immediate response, take a sip, collect yourself. Then use that as a moment to take some deep breaths, get yourself back on track. Number three, speak slowly. The mere act of speaking slowly engages the cognitive part of your brain because you now have to pay attention to the pace of your speech. And typically when we're nervous, we speak really fast Mm -hmm. and that uh, it, it, it creates this mirroring effect in the people around us because they're mirroring our energy. And so we're looking at them and we're seeing that nervousness reflected back to us in their body language and the way that they're engaging us. And it becomes this sort of self fulfilling experience, right? But if we speak slowly, we come across as more in command of our message. We feel more confident and the people around us respond to us accordingly. So I I would say like imposter syndrome 101 is managing that fight or flight response. (laughs) I I love that, Kim, how you described that it, it comes about when we're in situations where there are perceived threats, not actual threats, right? It's like when we're at home and we're like, do you smell that? Am I smelling something? Like your brain knows when it could be smoke, might not be smoke or could be gas, but not gas. You don't immediately freak out and go into the fight or flight because it's in the physical world and you're like, it's either here or it's not, let's figure it out. And then you determine if there's smoke or not and you take care of it. But when there are perceived threats, it's our brains like, don't know, like has assumed, oh no, it's already here. I'm not asking if there's smoke there's smoke in this room, right? Something's on fire and I feel like I'm in danger. So slowing ourselves down. I had never heard it said that way where taking a breath, right? Let's the body know like, okay, if, if you're being chased after, you wouldn't be able to take a breath. So by taking a breath, you are sending the opposite signal to your brain of like, nope, we are not under threat. Drinking water, brilliant. Another thing I also use is I, I say, well, that's an interesting question. Huh. That also slows it down and it gives your brain some time to think about it. And what you described, people might have heard me start to giggle because I've seen that before. I definitely talk fast when I'm nervous. So now I have unconsciously sped up the conversation. Now everyone's talking really fast back and forth. And it just feels more like your nervous system just goes haywire at that point. And the other thing is sometimes when I'm talking fast, I haven't thought through my conclusion. And so I keep going and then I'm babbling. My boyfriend and I, we call it like, like, are you going to land the plane? Like, you know, but you, you can't like you have to come to a conclusion that's landing the plane. And when you keep circling the airport right? Because you don't know where to land the plane or how to land the plane. It's just like people are just sitting there waiting for you to like stop talking, right? It's just And it just intensifies because you then start to see the situation for like you almost have an out of body experience of like, oh my God, I don't know how to, I don't know how to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And it has that effect that we were talking about earlier of reinforcing. See, I knew that I didn't belong here. I can't even finish my thought, right? I can't even say this in an intelligent way when that's not what is causing <laughs> the circling. <laughs> yeah. So slowing it down. 
Mental fitness is your capacity to respond to life's challenges with a positive rather than a negative mindset. What diminishes your mental fitness is internal saboteurs. Saboteurs are the voices in your head that generate negative emotions in the way you handle life's everyday challenges. They represent automated patterns in your mind for how to think, feel, and respond. They cause all of your stress, anxiety, self-doubt, frustration, restlessness, and unhappiness. There are 10 different saboteurs, but not everyone is impacted by the same ones. There's a combination of two to four saboteurs that are likely more familiar to you. Are you curious to know which saboteurs are impacting your performance, wellness, and relationships, and how they do so? To take the saboteur assessment, go to positiveintelligence.com forward slash saboteurs. You can also find the link in the episode description right in your podcast app. It's hyperlinked, so you can click right on it. You can also reach out to me afterwards for an insight session if you'd like to dive deeper into your results. So again, to take the saboteur assessment, go to positiveintelligence.com forward slash saboteurs and find out exactly what you need to do to overcome your saboteurs. You mentioned just being in a room where you feel a little out of your league. Does, are there any other trends with your clients where like these types of situations tend to be triggering? So just be aware of it going in and maybe are there things you can do before you even go into the situation to prepare yourself? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I always think of everything as having a before, during, and after. We always tend to think about things in the during moment, mm -hmm. right? But there's a lot we can do beforehand to try to minimize some of these threats and, and uh, just anxiety-provoking situations. So I always recommend that you pay attention. Just observe for a while. What are the things that activate your nervous system in this way? Because it's going to be different for everyone. And once you have a sense of the patterns and the trends there, then you can start to think about how do I manage my individual triggers? You can't really manage imposter syndrome at the top level because you can't get your arms around it. What you can do is recognize what feeds it and then really try to address those. So some of the common themes that I see is around preparation, especially when it comes to women. We never feel adequately prepared. We set an expectation for ourselves that we need to be able to answer every possible question that might be asked. And unfortunately, it's not like school. It's not like school where you know because boundaries have been established around mm -hmm. what you're expected to know. You could go into that room and people could ask you a question entirely out of left field. So instead of trying to prepare for everything, think about what you're most afraid of and have a plan for that, right? So someday you're going to be asked a question you don't have the answer to. What will you do then? And mm -hmm. what is it that you're really worried that you don't know enough about, right? Can you have a conversation with a colleague ahead of time to get some extra insight around a particular topic? Can you bring that colleague with you so that you get out of your own depth, you can bring them into the conversation, right? So, so just be thinking about where you feel like those gaps are so that you can put the appropriate resources in place to help right. you build them in advance. 
And I'm thinking also like, okay, say you are in the meeting and something comes out of left field and you don't have the resource and you didn't see it coming. You can also say, that's a great question. I'm going to look that up, right? Because if you knew that question was going to be asked, you'd be prepared for it. People understand like, oh, if I ask something out of left field and they didn't know this was going to be a topic of conversation, everybody has a little bit of space that, okay, yeah, we're going to need more time to pull some information together to get the answer to this question. Yeah. And I always think about it as going on offense rather than defense. So a lot of times what people are responding to is not that we don't know the answer. It's the way that we respond to not knowing the answer. So there's a big difference between saying something like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I know I should know the answer to this question. (laughs) Right. And then making something up that's not true. (laughs) And then making it look like you're unprepared versus owning it and saying, oh, that was outside the scope of what I prepared for this conversation. But I'd be more than happy to follow up with you offline afterwards and give that to you. Right. Most people will be reasonable. People will be satisfied with that response. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's coming to mind, Kim, is that as human beings, we all experience imposter syndrome at some times. I'm going to go into general generalities, but, you know, just know that like, you know, man or woman, they can have similar responses, but generically some more often men will respond by coming across overconfident and women tend to shrink back when they're experiencing imposter syndrome. So it can be perceived that like, oh, men are always confident. They don't feel this way. Well, if you've met a gentleman who's probably overly confident that it's usually from that sense of like feeling like unprepared or maybe I'm not qualified. So I got to come across like super confident so that people don't think they picked the wrong person. Whereas women will research the crap out of something, right. <laughs> to, to, you know, to, to make sure. So, you know, it, it is universal. And I think sometimes just recognizing like, My boss experiences imposter syndrome on occasions. My peers do, team members, you know, that can, that insight alone sometimes can help validate it. It doesn't make it easier when it's happening in the moment, right? Because it it will still happen, but, you know, let validate that this is a human experience. And I love how you said that right from the beginning. It's, it's an anxiety that, that we all have and we've all experienced before. That's right, because we care about our performance. We want to do our best work. We want to put our best foot forward, and we're afraid that we're going to get it wrong. And I'm glad you brought up the difference between men and women, too, because a lot of that comes back to socialization. And, you know, when we think about Brene Brown's work, where she talks about, you know, shame triggers for men and women, women's biggest shame trigger is around not being perfect. For men, it's about not being strong. So that is why you see these insecurities manifest themselves very differently. Men will come out swinging and be very over uh, compensating in ha- when they deal with their own insecurities, whereas women will sit on the sidelines and just not engage. So my, um, my perspective on this is that true confidence is quiet right? If you really believe in yourself, you know where your strengths lie and where they end. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be flexing your muscles. If someone shows up that way, it's a really good indication that they're feeling insecure. And I think that's important to know because it again reinforces the point that you're making that we all feel this way. We are all in and out of this all the time. 
Yeah. Okay. So you talked before about that before, during, and after arc. So take us to after. Okay. Like it got away from us. We felt the imposter syndrome right now. We might be leaving the meeting flushed and a little shaken. Like what can people do after the fact to kind of nip this in the bud and regulate their nervous system again? Yeah. So part of it is that we are just hardwired because of that same threat response to always focus on the negative. It's our negativity bias. So it's the same way that when we were in school, if you came home with a 98% on a test, you were going to go to that 2% and that's where all of your attention will be. When we come out of a meeting, we're always going to go to what did I not say? What did I say wrong? All of the negative. We Because we will not do this naturally, we have an opportunity to insert practices that become habitual. And one of them that I recommend is that you balance that evaluation of yourself. So every time you come out of a meeting and you start thinking to yourself, oh, I can't believe I said that. Or, I can't believe I didn't say that. First of all, you ask yourself, what can I learn from that? Right? Because that's really the goal. It's I mean, you can't change the past, but you can think about if I'm not proud of the way I showed up in that moment, I can at least start to think about what might I do differently going forward. And number two is that you ask a, you know, a question on the flip side is, but what am I proud of? What did go well? Because I guarantee you there's a lot that went well that we've breezed right past. We That's what happens to us is that we're chugging along. We're paying attention to every mistake we make. We're thinking about all the ways that we don't measure up to the people around us. And then we get to our next stop on our career journey. And we think, oh my gosh, it's a complete fluke that I'm here. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're not putting our attention in the positive place. So I highly recommend that you just inject opportunities to think about yourself in a more positive way. And then also to recognize that usually, unless there's a super time sensitive decision that needs to be made, usually there's opportunity to continue the conversation after the meeting ends. You could always go back to someone and say, you know, in that meeting, I gave you my off the top of my head response, but having had some time to reflect on it further, I'd love to share some additional thoughts. Right? I love that. Yes. Cause the conversation's never open over, right? <laughs> Un unless we've like pulled the trigger on a decision, people are like going like full speed ahead. You can always circle back and go, you know what? There was, I've had a thought since mm -hmm. our conversation, you can always circle back. Like there's no like ultimate conclusion. And I love how you pointed out, like, cause you know, a lot of the women who are listening to this podcast, they're in new roles or they're getting ready for the next one to just recognize oftentimes we get to a point of mastery in our current role and we feel very comfortable and we got this. There's not too many things that can throw us off center to just recognize when we do take on a new role, there's a lot of learning that goes on in the beginning and to give yourself space and some grace for that nobody's expecting you to take on a new role and do it perfectly at first. There's always a learning curve. Yes. Don't compare yourself in the beginning of a new role to yourself at the end of your last role. Right. Compare yourself in the beginning of a new role to your the beginning of the last role, right? Mm -hmm. To remind yourself, 
you got through that and you were able to master it. You can do it again this time. Yes. And you and I, Kim, had that experience when we were on the panel for Aspen Tech, where we had asked the room, like, how many of you have felt unconfident, you know, within the first few months of taking on a new role? And the whole room raised their hand, pretty much. It was like, and the person who had been talking was like, oh, my God, thank you, everyone, for saying that, right? Because that's what happens, right? It's very natural. It's so normal. You don't go into a new role having mastered it already. That's just not going to be the reality. So give yourself some time to, to figure it out. And your managers and people around you know those first three to six months, you're just trying to figure it out, right? You're doing the like the talking tour, you're interviewing people, you're finding out more about what's expected of you because there's always more than what's in the job description and all of that. Exactly. So so lots and lots to learn. Okay, Kim, anything we missed that that you would add at this point that people like could really benefit from? I would just build on what you said. I often joke that managing imposter syndrome is about revealing the absurdity of our thinking because we <laughs> think that face value, these expectations that we put on ourselves. And when you actually start to say them out loud and examine them from a different lens, you think, huh, why would I expect to have fully mastered a new role on day one? <laughs> right? So I think part of it is just really listening to that inner critic. And I think of it as anytime you feel anything uncomfortable, whether that's stress, anxiety, frustration, anger, think of it as your body's check engine light, right? It's your brain's check engine light. It's like if your car's light goes off, you want to look under the hood and see what's going on. Same thing. Like when you get activated in some way, it's an opportunity to look further into what just happened, right? What mm -hmm. triggered me? Is this a true threat? What are the actions available to me? How can I manage this? Because we're just zooming through our lives at such a high speed that we're not slowing down long enough to actually think about things through a more intentional lens. Yeah. Get back in your body. And that will help you assess the situation accurately. And one thing I, I will repeat to myself is, or I'll, I'll just declare, there is nothing here that is threatening me. There is, there is no danger here. And that helps my mind and my nervous system calm down. Cause I recognize like if my nervous system is amping up or I'm feeling negative emotions, like I am perceiving a threat. And it's probably not real. It's just my mind getting out of control. So sometimes just like you said, like that breath and drinking the water helps you get back in the moment, back in your body, gives you some space to recognize like, oh, okay, I got caught up in this moment. Kim, it has been incredible talking to you. I knew you would bring tons and tons of value. And those who are listening are going to want to find you and connect with you and delve more deeply into your work. So where can people find you? So the, the two places I would recommend are my website, which is kimmenninger.com. That's where my podcast is. That's where other resources for imposter syndrome live. And I would love to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. I share a lot of content from the people I follow related to the themes that we've been talking about. And I'm always open to growing my network. Yes. And yeah, so anyone listening, definitely connect with her. And I'm also going to include her TED Talk in the show notes and this description of the podcast. So you can just scroll down and you will find her website, her LinkedIn profile and her TED Talk. Easy access for you to connect with Kim because she's incredible. And Kim, 
thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. Thank you, Jody. That means so much to me. I'm so grateful that we share this mission and really uh, thankful to you for the work you're doing too. Thank you so much for listening to Women Taking the Lead. If you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, hit the follow button or subscribe button so you don't miss out on the upcoming episodes. And if you know of other women and men who can benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Most new discoveries come from our friends, family, and colleagues. Be that person for others. And as always, I hope this was of value to you and here's to your success.